0: This morning comes from Exodus chapter 40 verses 1 through 17 and then 34 through 38. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, on the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony and you shall screen the ark with the veil And you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps, and you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of the burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it, and you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it, and consecrate it and all its furniture, so that it may become holy. And you shall also anoint the altar of the burnt offering and all its utensils, and consecrate the altar, so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand, and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him, that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did. According to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their generations. This is God's word. You may be seated. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open. In fact, to... Flip back a couple of pages to Exodus 35 as we uh, finish our series in this book this morning. But let's take a moment and pray for God to meet us in his word. Lord, thank you for this book and the privilege it's been to spend the last several months uh, walking through it together as a church family. Thank you uh, for all that you have revealed of yourself to us. in in these pages. Um, And I pray, God, that as we uh, conclude and reflect on who you are and what you've done, that you would take the truth of this book and that you would apply it deep into our hearts, that our lives might be changed to be more and more like you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The city of Framingham, which is where I live, uh, recently underwent one of the most significant transformations that a local municipality can experience. I'm not talking about becoming a city. Uh, the recent vote uh, Framingham went from being the largest town in America, now it's a city. I'm not talking about that recent transition a couple months ago. I'm talking about something that happened a little over a year ago, the grand opening of (laughs) Chick-fil-A. It's true. Now, I know there are haters out there who don't see what the big deal is, and I confess that I was underwhelmed the first time I ate at a Chick-fil-A. The hype is really hard to live up to. But, after the second and third time, I was sold. And then, last summer, Travis... Uh, Vaclavik, introduced me to Chick-fil-A sauce for my waffle fries. <laughs> Total game changer. I mean, As if the food wasn't already incredible. But when that Chick-fil-A opened a little over a year ago, February 2016, the most important transition a town can experience, when that Chick-fil-A opened, uh, Chick-fil-A has a tradition of giving away a year's worth of free food to the first 100 customers. Uh, Not a joke. This is a big deal. People camp out to get in line for this. Some of those people may or may not be the principal at Veritas Christian Academy. And there are strict rules... For How this is done you know They've got the rules You can download them online You can't arrive before 5.30am the day before And once you get your number You have your designated spot And unless you've got to go to the bathroom You stay in that spot The next 24 hours until those doors open You can't sneak off to go sleep in your car When it gets cold Then you lose your spot uh, And and we're talking about February in New England And so you got to be committed, right? But for those who follow the rules and persevere, there is the glory set before them of 52 free meals of Chick-fil-A. A year's worth. But imagine participating in this giveaway, this competition, following all of the rules exactly as they're laid out, camping outside overnight in February in New England, just like you're supposed to, only to awake the next morning for the grand opening and discover that no one is allowed in. The building's done. The food is inside. You saw the truck arrive. But no one's allowed to enter in. It kind of defeats the purpose of a grand opening, right? Especially when you followed all of the rules. Now, I'm not about to compare eating Chick-fil-A with entering the presence of the Lord. That's not in the same universe. But, this is where sermon illustrations always kind of, you know, fall to the ground. But I have to wonder if, if that's perhaps a sliver of what Israel felt at the end of Exodus. When they finally turned a quarter, they were actually walking in obedience. They built the tabernacle just as God designed it. They completed it. They actually saw the glory of the Lord descend on it and fill it, only to discover that no one could go in. Not even Moses. I mean, it's some grand opening, right? Some conclusion to a story. We've been Going through 40 chapters only to get to the end and no one can go in? What do we make of this big finish to the story of Exodus? That's what I want to consider this morning as we finish our series through this book. So chapters 35 to 40 are the final section of the book. And most of these verses echo chapters 25 to 31, which we looked at a few weeks ago where Moses received the instructions when he's up on the mountain for uh, how to build this tabernacle for God so that God can dwell with his redeemed people. In chapters 25 to 31, you have the instructions for the tabernacle, uh, the ark, all of its furniture, the, the table, the lampstand, and so on. And then in 35 to 40, we now read about the construction of that tabernacle in those elements, just as God revealed them. And of course, in between, between chapters 31 and 35, nearly everything uh, fell apart, or everything nearly fell apart. Israel committed idolatry against the Lord. They built built a a golden calf to make an image of Yahweh and then worshipped it, completely breaking the covenant they just committed themselves to. And everything nearly fell apart. The whole deal was almost completely off the table, but as we saw the last couple of weeks, Moses faithfully interceded for Israel. He appealed before God on behalf of God's name uh, and, and in light of God's own mercy that God would spare his people and renew his covenant. And as we saw, that's exactly what God did. Uh, and so with that covenant renewed, the deal back on the table, God's promise to be with his people and to be their God, it is now time in chapter 35 for Israel to get to work building the tabernacle that God has told them to build. He wants to dwell with his people. And again, that's one of the main reasons God saved them from slavery in the first place, that he could dwell with them. Uh, Back in chapter 29, we read this. God says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. God wants to be with his people in a special way. And so chapter 35, it's game time. It's its building time. The ground is cleared. Construction is ready to begin. And, and chapter 35 starts off right where chapter 31 left off, before that whole debacle with the golden calf. Chapter 31 ended with instructions about keeping the Sabbath and the holiness of it. That's exactly where 35 begins. What's about to happen with this construction of the tabernacle is ultimately about worshiping Yahweh. Just as, as the tabernacle is going to be right in the center of Israel's camp, so Yahweh is to be the center of Israel's life to the point that they build their entire work week around him and his worthiness, modeling it after his own pattern of work and creation. And so, so they're reminded out of the shoot that this is about the worthiness of the Lord and his worship. And then a little further into chapter 35, Moses takes up a collection for all of the uh, building materials needed for constructing this tabernacle and all of its furniture. But he does not demand these donations. Uh, He doesn't demand gold from the people like Aaron did with the golden calf. Instead, he says, whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. He invites a willing Offering from among the people. And that's exactly what happens. In fact, the willingness of the people's hearts to give to the Lord is stressed over and over again in this chapter. Verses 21 to 22. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart. See that emphasis over and over again, the willingness of their heart. Then you see it again in verse 24. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver and bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. This is worship. This giving is worship. Verse 26. All the women whose hearts stirred them. Verse 29. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. So you hear that repetition of the willingness of their hearts over and over again. What an incredible contrast to everything we've seen of Israel in this book so far. Like something's happening here. Something They're getting something right. They're giving out of the the true, genuine concern and devotion of their hearts. In fact, uh, in chapter 36, the craftsmen tell Moses that the people bring much more than enough for the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. Moses has to stop them from giving because there's too much. That's an incredible picture. But it's not just the genuineness of their heart that's emphasized in these chapters. So is their careful obedience to God's commands. Over and over again, this description uh, of each element being made, it mirrors the instructions that we read back in chapters 25 to 31. Piece by piece, Israel faithfully constructs a dwelling place for God. The tabernacle, the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altar of incense, the, the altar of the burnt offering outside the tent, the bronze basin, the court, the, the priestly garments, all of these things. Uh, as, as chapter 39 to 30, uh, 39 verse 32 summarizes, it says, Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished, and the people of Israel did according to all the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. So you can hear, there's this emphasis on their obedience. They're following God's word. They're finally getting it right. Again, in 39 verses 42 to 43, it says, according to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work and behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. Again, it's an incredibly stark contrast to what we've seen, to their prior grumbling and their recent idolatry. And so they put everything together in chapter 40. Uh, they they've built all of the pieces. Now it's time to put it together. Chapter 40, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of beating. So they've been out of Egypt a year now. And, and they're marking that year anniversary by putting the tabernacle together. And this Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him. So he did in the first month of the second year on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. What a great climax to the book. The one year anniversary of their freedom from Egypt. And they're finally completing this building project because God wants to dwell with his people. This is the moment they've been waiting for, that we've been waiting for. I mean, you you think about where the story started, clear back when Israel's enslaved in Egypt, forced to serve a, a king that is not their God, who is not their father, who is stealing the glory that God deserves, and all that God has done to rescue them from that slavery, from their own sin through the Passover lamb, to then reveal himself to them in the wilderness. What kind of God he is as he provides for them and rules them and gives them his law and makes them his covenant people and then this promise to dwell with them. All of that comes to this great climax in the last chapter. The, leading up to this point, the presence of God in their midst, the grand opening of the tabernacle. Verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God's presence is finally with his people. This is the way the story should end, right? This is a good, happy ending. But then you read verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So it's a grand opening, but no one is allowed in. Some grand opening, right? And and you've got to be wondering, if you're Israel, or really if you're anyone reading this story, you've got to wonder, why is this? Why stop here? What, What else does Israel need to do? I mean, they've been saved, they've been set apart to be God's people. Yeah, they blew it, but but the covenant's been renewed, and they've been walking in obedience and genuine worship of heart? Shouldn't that be enough to enter God's presence? The conclusion of Exodus reminds us of a couple of things. First, that the story isn't really finished. You have to keep reading in Leviticus to find out. It ends with kind of a cliffhanger. And it forces you to keep reading into the next book, but of course you get through Leviticus and you realize that story's not finished either. They've got all of the the uh necessary worship and instructions in place for that, but they're still in the wilderness, and so it moves you forces you into numbers and numbers into Deuteronomy and so on and And when you think about it, that makes sense if you go back to Exodus when we began this book, we couldn't start. Exodus, in Exodus, we had to start it in Genesis and find the context, because the story didn't begin in Exodus 1. It had begun before that. And so one of the things that that happens in this conclusion is it reminds us that the Genesis through Deutero- De- Deuteronomy really is one big book, what we call the Torah or the Pentateuch. It's five books, but it's a five-part book. And and uh So that's one of the things we realize at the end of Exodus, that there's more to the story. But more than that, and more to the point, this strange conclusion, the grand opening that no one can go in, also reminds us that grace is just as necessary for enjoying and nurturing our relationship with God as it was for beginning that relationship in the first place. God's grace... His favor toward unworthy sinners. His grace is just as necessary for enjoying and nurturing our ongoing relationship with God as it was for beginning that relationship in the first place. The same grace that saves us also sanctifies and sustains us for our everyday walk with the Lord. That's the theological point that Exodus ends on. That our relationship with God is by grace from beginning to end. From beginning to end. And both of those points are actually pretty easy to miss in the book of Exodus. That we're saved by grace and that we are sanctified or made holy by grace. Because this book is in the Old Testament, there is a common assumption that. Israel must have been saved by their good works, right their law they were given the law that 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 uh, that that's why they, how they were saved um, by obeying the law. Several problems with that, first being that the Old Testament nowhere teaches that salvation is by works it's always by grace through faith, but more specifically, Exodus doesn't teach this and and we've noted this several times it's not as though God showed up, Israel's enslaved. In Egypt, God shows up and says, Hey, here's my law. Keep these rules. I'll come back and save you and get you out. It doesn't happen that way. God comes and saves them by his mercy and grace. And only after that does he give them his law so that they know how to live as his redeemed people. And so we are saved by grace. And Exodus makes that point strongly. But we're also sanctified by grace. We need it just as much Today, as we did the first day of our relationship with God. Because now that Israel has the law, which they're called to obey, they still need grace to relate to God. Even when they're obeying the law to the letter, they still need grace to relate to God and enter his presence. That's the shocking conclusion to the story. And it's, it's kind of shocking to our system as well. Because we assume that if we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, that everything should go well. When we obey the rules, we expect results from obeying the rules. I waited in line all night for 52 Chick-fil-A meals. I want my chicken. I followed the rules. We built a tabernacle according to all the correct specifications Why can't anyone go in? I have my quiet time. I pray. I go to church. I give. I serve. I show kindness to others. I expect God to bless my life and for things to go well. This is human nature. But it's fallen human nature. Because it overlooks two significant facts. First, our obedience does not obligate God to do anything. Because second, even our best days are still stained by sin. Even our best days are still stained by sin. Even when Israel obeys the law, they still need grace to relate to God. That's the point Exodus lands on. The necessity of God's grace, not just for beginning a relationship with God, but for relating to God every day of that relationship. It's still by grace. And, and that this is the main point of the conclusion becomes clear when you keep reading into Leviticus. Exodus ends with a problem. The temple's done. The glory of God has filled it. No one can go in. So there's a problem at the end of the, at the, end of the book of Exodus. You expect that Leviticus will begin to answer that problem. And how does Leviticus begin? What happens in the first seven chapters of Leviticus? What are those about? You can glance there on the next page. It's seven chapters explaining the necessary sacrifices for Israel that will atone for their sin and bring forgiveness. Atonement, covering over, cleansing Israel's sin, dealing with it in order to bring about forgiveness and make Israel acceptable to God. The burnt offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering. All of which work together to make atonement for them and they shall be forgiven. That's a phrase repeated countless times in those first seven chapters. So why can't Moses go into God's presence once the tabernacle's done? Because even Moses, Moses who who wasn't complicit in that whole idolatry shenanigans, Moses whose obedience has been emphasized throughout the book of Exodus, even Moses is stained by sin and is in need of atonement for that sin. Atonement that God offers by His grace. And that's what ultimately makes the difference. So in Leviticus... After the instructions for the sacrifices in the first seven chapters, then chapter 8, Aaron is finally consecrated for his role as priest. And then chapter 9 of Leviticus, you finally see the first offerings made by Aaron as priest. The the worship begins, it commences. Uh, and, And as that happens again, we see this language of God's glory appearing to the people of Israel. Moses tells Aaron, the priest, and all of the people to to prepare sacrifices to the Lord. For today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in the front of the tent of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, these sacrifices, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. This glory that they can't enter into yet. It's coming, but we need to offer these sacrifices. And Aaron does it. He offers sacrifices first for himself and the priests and then for Moses. And look at the results of those sacrifices. Leviticus 9, twenty-two to 24 Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. They finally got to go inside. And when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Moses and Aaron. Went into the tent of meeting, into the dwelling place of God, filled with his glory. And what made that possible was not their obedience at the end of Exodus. It was God's grace. It was God's grace expressed by accepting a sacrifice on their behalf to atone, to cover over, to cleanse their sin. So grace is just as necessary for enjoying and nurturing our relationship with God as it is for beginning that relationship in the first place. Their obedience is important. God called them to holiness. But they need more than obedience to have an audience with God. They need His grace. Even on their best days, they still need God's grace. For that relationship. And that is just as true for us in Christ today. It is grace that saves us through what Christ accomplished on our behalf on the cross. In his life, his death, his resurrection. We have a relationship with God, not because of what we do for him. Not because we figure out a way to clean up our lives or or keep the rules or, or make up for what we've done wrong. But through faith in what Christ did for us, offering his perfect life in our place, taking our sin on himself on the cross. So through faith in Christ, we are saved by God's grace, his favor toward sinners who deserve his wrath. So we're saved by by grace through faith in Christ. We are also sanctified by grace today, just as it was with Moses. We need that grace to relate to God even on our best days. Even when everything's going well. I actually, I read my Bible today like I was planning to and I remembered to pray for the person I said I was going to pray for them and then I forgot last week. But I really prayed for them this morning and I'm, and, I, and I'm doing everything with joy in my heart for the Lord. Guess what? I still need God's grace for my relationship Paul reminds us in Galatians that we don't begin with the Spirit and then become perfected by the flesh. It's not grace gets us in the door and now it's all up to you. It is grace from beginning to end in our relationship with God. And we have that grace through Christ, our great high priest. What what God did in part for Moses and Israel through the Levitical priests He does in full for all people in all times through Christ who is the great high priest. The fulfillment of all of the priesthood of Leviticus. Listen to what Hebrews 10 says. Every priest stands daily at his service. These are the Levitical priests from the Old Testament. Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. That's The Levitical system. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, himself, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, past tense, what Jesus has already done, he has perfected for all time, future tense, those who are being sanctified. Present tense. We are being sanctified. We're being made holy. And it's by God's grace. It's by God's grace. Grace from beginning to end. This is good news for weary Christians. This is good news for weary Christians. No matter how long you've known God or how much of the Bible we know, or how long we've been serving, all of us are tempted to slip into a transactional relationship with God. To think that my acceptance is somehow based on my performance. We all are just prone to slip into that trap. That, that God loves me more when I'm doing my best for Him, and He hangs His head in disappointment over me when I screw up. It's easy to slip into that trap, but when we do, our relationship with God becomes a dispassionate duty rather than joyful worship. We spend all of our, all of our time trying to look like we have it together. Even if we can't fool God, maybe I can fool some of you. When we try to look like we have it all together, knowing all the while we're really a mess. We, we aren't perfect. We don't have it all together. We sin a hundred times a day and we're, we're frustrated about it and we want to do better and we're tired. We're tired because we know we're not good enough. We're weary. This is good news for weary Christians that, that God's grace isn't just for the start but it's for the finish too. And when we come to truly believe that our entire relationship with God From beginning to end is not based on my obedience or my performance, but on His grace. There's incredible freedom in that. Freedom from guilt and shame, from anxiety, freedom to stop hiding who we are. Not freedom to do whatever I want now, freedom to sin. That's not the kind of freedom we have. Obedience still matters. Holiness matters. We are saved in order to be set apart for God, a people who serve Him and His kingdom. But our standing before God, our acceptance by God, our invitation into His presence does not rest on our obedience, but on Christ's obedience for us. Which means that the only way a Christian can be shut out from the presence of God is if the father were to shut out his own son, Jesus. And that's not going to happen. Our relationship with the father is just as secure when, when our faith is in Christ and nothing else. Our relationship with the father is just as secure as the father's relationship with the son. Because He is our advocate. He is our savior. He is our representative. He is our grace. And it's grace from beginning to end through Christ. That is good news for weary Christians. It's also good news for non-Christians. For people who who don't know Jesus yet, who uh, so often have an idea that Christianity is, is all about trying to be better than everyone else. Uh, some people look at Christianity and, and they're disgusted by the hypocrisy of what they see. That this idea that, that it's all about being better than everyone else. Or, or others look at it and think, I can never measure up to that. Like, there's no way God could ever accept me because I know what I've done. I know who I am. And there's just no hope for that. But the good news is that Christianity actually begins with the recognition that I'm far worse than everyone else. Or at least far worse than I'll ever admit to anyone. That I don't have it all together. That I don't deserve to enter God's presence. But that Christ's life and death for me is more than enough to rescue me from sin, to refashion my heart, to recalibrate my desires, to cleanse me and make me useful to God. In other words, Christianity is all about grace. God's favor to those who deserve His wrath. And it is for us, not by being good enough, but by trusting in our Savior Christ. So it's good news for weary Christians. It is good news For non-Christians, that it's grace from beginning to end. But this message is hard news for proud Christians. For successful Christians, compliant Christians, whatever you want to call it. Christians who know they're saved by grace and who are really good at obeying, keeping God's commands, doing their best for Him, and that think that because of that, God will now bless me. I've done well. He's going to reward me. Christians who don't mind slipping into the performance trap because they're really good at it. They're really good at it. They can point to their lives and the good things they've done for God, especially in comparison with others, and therefore think that they have some claim on God's presence, some right to His blessing. When I take Pride in my performance for God. It's hard news to find out that it's all about grace. It's like the parable of the laborers in the vineyard in Matthew 20, who did everything right, who worked hard all day long in the scorching heat, and were outraged that they received the same day's wage as those who showed up at the 11th hour. How dare you? Have favor on them after what I've done for you. That's not fair. But grace isn't fair. Fair would be shedding, being shut out from the presence of God forever. That's fair. That's what we really deserve. But by grace, and only by grace, are we invited into God's presence which means that for those of us who find ourselves taking pride in our performance, that we need to repent of our righteousness. Not just our unrighteousness, but our righteousness as well. Not that we stop doing what is right and serving the Lord, but we stop depending on what we do that is right. we repent of our self-righteousness and recognize that even when we do our best work for God, we're still in need of His grace. As Jerry Bridges famously said, your worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace, and your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need for God's grace. It is grace from beginning to end. That's what we need. And that is exactly what Christ offers to us. And in Jesus, who fulfilled the old covenant in Exodus and established a new covenant in his own blood, in Jesus we are able to be the covenant people God calls us to be in this book. As 1 Peter puts it, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We are able to be the covenant people God calls us to be, bearing witness to his kingdom as representatives, as children of the king. And that's all because of grace. The very next verse in First Peter. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And that's what makes it possible to be the covenant people God calls us to be. It is grace that saves us, It is grace that sanctifies us and sustains us. And so may God's grace abound in us through Christ. That we might experience that freedom and joy and holiness that God calls his people to, to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Gracious Father, what else can we say but thank you? Lord, what an absolute, incredibly astounding truth is it? That it's your grace that undergirds our relationship. And Lord, we know you call us to holiness. We know you call us to obedience. We confess that we're not good at it. We want to honor you with our lives. But thank you that you're not waiting around tapping your foot impatiently for us to pull it together. But that you give us grace and that's what makes it possible to obey. And so Lord, we confess our unending need of your inexhaustible grace. May we be a people marked by it in our relationships at home, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our neighborhoods. May we be a people who are humble because we know the kind of grace you've had on us, grace far beyond what we ever deserve, and because we're eager to therefore extend that grace to others, that others might have a taste of what you're like. May we be marked and known as a people overflowing with grace, because you are a God who overflows with grace. Lord, may your name be honored in and through us on account of your grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.